Uh, when I was growing up in the 90s, gasp, um, everyone was passing around uh, these, these books, these things called magic eye books, uh, or they also existed in poster form. You may have a magic eye poster. Now, what was magic eye? A magic eye was uh, just this colored picture poster thing that looked like nothing. It was just kind of a, it'd be all pink with maybe some shades of purple or something around the edges or other various colors, but it really just looked like nothing. And as you, if you just glanced at it, you would assume as much and you would go on. But the trick to these things was that if you stared at them, if you, how many of y'all have seen these things? Okay, cool. Um, cool, kind of. Uh, you look at them and if you stare at them, your body starts doing weird things, namely your eyes. And the perception of your eyes starts to adjust and pictures and images and all kinds of things jump out at you from these pictures. It is a trip. I don't know if it works on a computer screen, but you could Google it later on and find out. I don't think it does. But anyway, the the thing about these was that you would assume that there's nothing there until you just looked really, really hard for sometimes for a long time. And then you realize there's a lot of things there. I've been suggesting all semester that that's kind of how the book of Leviticus functions for us, right? We may have never looked at it before. Maybe you have, but either way, as you kind of look at it or read through it, you're probably thinking, uh, there's really nothing there for us. I don't think there's anything in this book that's of use uh, for me in my life or for people in today's day and age. But what I've been trying to suggest is that the more you look at it, and the more almost that you, that you stare at it and just look at the words, and the more we try to study it here on Wednesday nights, the more we see Jesus jumping out at, of, of this book at us. That he is all over these pages. He's in the law, and he's in the sacrifices, and he's in the, he's in the priests, and he's in, uh, he's in all these codes of, of conduct and the way God was telling his people they should act. Jesus is all over the place in here. And, and tonight, what we're seeing is that God is looking at this people, at his people who he has redeemed and rescued from slavery in Egypt and whom he's promised to give them a land, a great land flowing with milk and honey. And he is looking at them and he is doing something that may sound very strange. He's commanding them to celebrate. He's commanding them to throw parties. And now we may... We may sit here and wonder, uh, and I hope I didn't bait you too much with the topic, like, oh, we're going to come to RUF tonight and talk about frat parties all night. That's not really so much what we're doing. Uh, I'm not getting into all the intricacies of alcohol. Uh, this isn't a passage even about alcohol, although I would say of note, God isn't necessarily against alcohol. Um, but what we start to see in this passage is that God is definitely for parties, He is definitely a God who commands celebration because he wants wants us to remember some very important things about him. Namely, what he has done and who he is. And I realize that in our day, when we think of parties and when when we kind of think of the, the traditional or stereotypical college parties, most of the... Most of the way that those are set up or most of the ways those end up going is that by the end of the night, the details are a little fuzzy on exactly what happened, if you remember anything at all. And God, when he commands these celebrations, he is doing it for the exact opposite. He's saying, I'm doing these and I'm commanding you to celebrate specifically so that you will remember. 
I'm telling you to party because you're supposed to celebrate who I am and what I've done. So that's the setup for this. Let me read Leviticus 23. And I've skipped over some sections um, because it's a long passage. But here we go. Starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall, you work, shall your work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, it is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month, it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Skipping down to verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present them with the bread. Uh, seven, you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and the drink offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs for a year old for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on this same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Last one. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a so- the first day shall be a day of solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. 
All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. And then he got a drink of water because that's a lot of them. I've got allergies tonight, so uh, forgive my voice and any noises that I make that are disgusting. So, been trying to build the case over these last couple weeks that that God gives his people, his redeemed people, his rescued, saved people, a code for living. He looks at them and says, you're not to be like the Egyptians in the place you just left. And in this land that I'm giving you, you're not to be like the Canaanites either. And he gives them, he commands them these various things uh, concerning uh, their bodies and how they were to uh, treat their bodies sexually speaking. He commands them and gives them laws about how they were to interact in the community and how they were to seek justice and take care of the poor and all of these things. Uh, next week, we're going to look at something else that has escaped my mind right now. But tonight, God is looking at his people and he's saying, I am commanding you to celebrate that I want... I so much want you to celebrate me that I'm going to tell you how to use your time. That I'm going to get right into the fabric of your calendars even. So that you will not forget who I am and what I've done for you. That I'm a good God. And that the life that you desire can only be found in me. And so he masterminds this calendar with all these different feasts and days of rest built into them that tell us some several, uh, several specific things. The first thing we're going to look at is the connection of these celebrations to Jesus. So, as you might have realized, that just reading through the feast right there, just kind of working down through all those celebration, uh, it can be pretty boring. But... You start to see the method in the badness. You start to see what's happening when you you understand that God uses this calendar as the template to tell them things about himself. And we really start to see it when you go over into the New Testament and you see Jesus kind of take these uh, these calendared events and these celebrations and start to apply them to himself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at four of these. There's seven there, but we're not going to look at all of them. We're going to look at four of them, and we're going to see how it is that they apply to Jesus. And therefore, in just a moment, talk about how they apply to us and what that might mean for us. So first one, let's look at the calendar year. The first one the calendar year was the Passover, and this is in verses 4 through 8. Here's what this is about. When uh, God's people, who had become the nation of Israel, when they were enslaved in Egypt, the angel of death... Uh, came and crushed their Jew- the Jewish oppressors, uh, oppressors, the Egyptians, by killing every firstborn child in the land. And the only reason that the Jewish firstborn children weren't killed also is because God had told Moses to tell the people to slaughter a Passover lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it above their doorposts and that they were then to take the lamb and have a meal and then get on the road and go. Because God was about to visit, the angel of death was about to visit the Egyptians, kill the firstborn children, and they were going to be mad as ants, and they were going to be coming after them. So he says, put this blood on your doorpost, make this meal, eat it fast, and then get out of town. So the Passover celebration then 
was a remembrance of that Exodus event and how God miraculously provided for them and brought them through the Red Sea and how he delivered them from Egypt. Now, is it any wonder, then, why Jesus chooses the eve of this holiday, which is kind of neat to be talking about this week. In history, that would be tomorrow, the Thursday before he went to the cross. So imagine for a moment that tomorrow Jesus gathers with his disciples on the eve of the Passover, and he's eating a meal with them. He's eating a Passover meal with them. And he says essentially this, that if you, if you eat my bread, if you eat my flesh and take my blood, basically if, if you take me into yourself, if you have faith in me is what he was getting at, then God's wrath will pass over you. That I am the ultimate Passover lamb. And what's interesting, if you look at the Lord's Supper and read about the accounts in the Gospels, that there's bread there, and that would have been there at all the other Passover meals back into the Old Testament. There was wine, which was a celebratory uh, cup. There was all these different things, but there was no lamb when Jesus sat around with his disciples. Implication. Jesus is saying, I'm the lamb. I'm the Passover lamb that for years all of those other Passover meals have been pointing to. It's all about me. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5-7 explicitly. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So that's what the Passover was, that first one there. The second one was the first fruits celebration, verses 9-14. through 14. So this was this kind of looked forward to when they would enter the promised land, and it was a, a rich land with fertile soil and all this stuff. And God was saying, when you get there, and when you have a great harvest, you're to take the first fruits or the first portion of that harvest and wave it before me uh, in, in, the, in the tabernacle and all these different things, literally waving it, acknowledging, as it were, that it was God who provided for them. That yes, you've had this great harvest, but let's be clear, the only reason you're even here in this land to have a harvest is because of me. And so they were to take the first part of their, uh, their harvest and do that. Paul picks up on this language also, again, in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, when he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So again, that's pretty exciting because this weekend, this Sunday in history, uh, the church celebrates Easter, celebrates Jesus' resurrection. And what that means is that when Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead, what Paul goes on to say is that the implication of that is that if you are in Christ, if you are believing in Him and trusting Him as your Savior, then even though you will die one day, your body will die, you will go to the grave. That will not be the end of your story. That one day, someday, Jesus is returning and he will bring with him the resurrection of the bodies, of all of our bodies. So he was kind of the first fruits. He was the deposit of what is coming later for everyone who is in him. Now, look, the world and, and people in the world over throughout history have been looking for things called the fountain of youth and the magic cream and, you know, looking to medicine, all, all kinds of crazy things, honestly, as a way to avert death and to live forever. And Scripture is unapologetically, clearly saying, that's what Jesus is offering. 
that in his resurrection, he is the first fruits, the first one of many who will come back to life and live forever. The third one here, the, fa- the, the, Pas- the Pentecost celebration, 50 days after Passover, verses 15 through 21. This was a giant celebration, tons of sacrifices and offerings and feasting. Um, interesting, interestingly, it, it talks about how they were to remember the poor. We talked about that in, in earnest before spring break, but he's just saying it again. Hey, don't forget, in the midst of all of your feasting and, and celebrating, don't forget the people who don't have as much. Make sure they can celebrate with you. So, excuse me. <laughs> in the New Testament, after Jesus is raised from the dead, 50 days after he is raised... In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we read about what happens on that 50th day. Jesus appears, he's with his disciples, and then he ascends to heaven. He goes away, but he promises something. He promises that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And on that 50th day, Peter and the other apostles are, are preaching, they're talking to people about Jesus, and it records... The very fact that the Holy Spirit comes down, it falls down from heaven, and it said like like flames of fire above people's head. Maybe there were literally flames of fire. I don't know. That's what it says. Probably means it. What happened that day is that as the Spirit came down and fell, all kinds of people were given eyes and ears to see and behold Jesus in their own tongue. The people who didn't hear this language now heard this language, and they believed the gospel. And it said that on that day, some 3,000 people became Christians. They were converted instantly when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Jesus, again, stands up in John chapter... Sorry, I skipped one. The last one here, the Feast of Booths. This is another huge celebration. Everyone would construct these makeshift tents uh, out of the the kinds of wood it talks about there. And they would live in them for seven days and basically just have a seven-day party. Just food and drink and celebration and all these things, remembering how they used to be pilgrims living in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Now, um, one of the things that developed, and we know this through scriptural tradition, but also through kind of extra-biblical writings. We have um, accounts from priests and stuff down through the years before the Bible was written that said that one of the things that developed alongside this celebration was that the priests who worked at the temple, that they would bring these big, vast jars of water up to the temple during this celebration, and they would pull, they would take water from the pool on the south side, and they would take them up, and they would pour them out in the people's presence from the temple. And the reason they did that was that in Ezekiel chapter 47, you can read it later in your devotional, um, there was this, that was a joke, but you can read it, it's a great chapter. Uh, there was this prophecy that one day there would be living waters flowing from the temple and that they would go far and wide and that whoever got touched by that living water would be healed and all these amazing promises about it. Jesus shows up in his life during this feast, the festival of booths, in, in John chapter 7, verses 36, and, sorry, 37, 38, and he says this, During that very time when the priest would take the jars of water, he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. What's Jesus saying? That prophecy in Ezekiel about that never-ending stream of water of life which will heal. If you believe in me, that will become true of you. That the Holy Spirit will come in and become in you like a spring of living water. It is life itself. And Jesus is saying, that's found in me. So these feasts and these celebrations, Jesus is explicitly making these connections and saying, it's about me. Now, I want us to take a moment and look at the principle that kind of underlies these things. What's the point of all this? We need to remember that chapter 23 of Leviticus comes right in the center of how God is commanding his people to be holy, which just means set apart or different from the Egyptians back there and from the Canaanites over here in the place they're about to go. So this is called the holiness code. The last few weeks we've looked at it this this week and then next week. It's this section in here that we're looking at. And he's saying, this is what it means and what it looks like to be holy. Now, do you, do you see how counter the mindset, or sorry, how counter to our natural mindset this passage is when, it thinks, when we think about holiness? That was a really wor- wordy way of saying. When we think about what it means to be holy or to act holy, We start thinking of all these different things to do. And I've thought about these in three different categories. First is the mechanical approach to holiness, which means that we kind of, uh, we think about change and holiness like a to-do list. Uh, You do these things over here. You follow these three steps over here. uh, You practice these principles. You um, do this in the mornings and do this in the evenings, whatever it may be. And if you do those things, you will change and you will be more holy. There's kind of this mechanical, rote approach to holiness and changing. Another way is a moralistic approach. And the moralistic approach to holiness says that we change and become more holy when we adopt a new set of rules, when we keep the code, when we um, stay mindful of the instructions. If I can just do the, the rules and be good enough, then I'll be holy and I will change. It's a moralistic approach charge, a moralistic imperative. Another way that we typically think about it is this, what I'm calling a mystical approach. And the, the mystical way of thinking about holiness and changing is sort of this, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get myself in the zone. And I'm going to listen to worship music for six hours straight. Or I'm going to go take a walk in the forest by myself uh, with nothing but me and Jesus. Or I'm going to go do this whatever thing it is to kind of build up the emotional thing, get all the feels going. And then if I can do that, if I can reach that state of pseudo nirvana, then I will be becoming more holy. Or I'll be changing through that act. Do you notice what all of these things have in common when it it comes to thinking about how we change or how we grow in holiness? They're all about you. They're all about me. They're all about us. God is not really a part of that equation at all. Maybe outside of providing some of the rules that we can find in the Bible. But it really, it's like... The, the, the whole 
the whole reason, the whole means by which you will become more holy just gets landed in your lap and it's just all up to you. Some of you still think about growing and changing and becoming more holy in this way today. That it's all up to you. And what I hope you see in this passage is that God is saying, no, no. Did you hear the refrain throughout the passage? You shall not do any ordinary work. Don't do any ordinary work. Don't do any ordinary work. It's a holy convocation. He's telling them, stop doing the stuff. So ordinary work, yes, it would have been their jobs and all of that stuff, but it also was just kind of the ritualistic stuff they did in their life. He's saying, hit pause on all that stuff and rest. Hit pause on all that. And the one thing that he is saying is that you are going to be a holy and set-apart people, and you are going to be a changed people because I am going to change you. And I'm going to command you to do the very things which will cause you to change. Namely, stop doing stuff and start resting. Get off the treadmill of activity and frenzied life and lifestyle. And I'm going to force you to slow down and to trust that I am at work even when you are not. The one feature that is consistent in all of the days is the command to stop working. Benjamin Franklin, uh, probably not a Christian, more like a theist, once said that he that can take rest is greater than he who can take cities. He who can take rest is greater than he who can take cities. What did he mean? What was he getting at there, even if he wasn't saying it necessarily in a Christian context? He understood at a deep level that there is a sort of deep REM rest that our souls need. That I'm going to suggest that no nap can provide. That no spring break could ever give you. That no summer break could ever give you. That no perfect family situation at home could ever give you. That there is a deep rest of the soul that doesn't come from anything that you can do or have on your own. Jesus acknowledges this in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, excuse me, and I will give you rest. He's not talking about a nap either. He's talking about the rest that only comes in him. He's not even talking about the festivals. He's not saying, hey, go, go do all the festivals and then you'll be restful. He's saying the festivals pointed to me. If you want real change, a life that is set apart and holy, if you want rest deep down in your soul, if you want to get off the frenzied treadmill of frantic performance, come to me and I will give you rest. In the passage, God commands his people to push back on that never-ending restlessness that was apparently tempting to them back then also, and that we know is killing us. That we know it's plaguing us. Not just here at TU, across the country, in our world, in our lives. You know, we, we are a frantic, frenzied people. And Jesus is offering us something in here that is absolutely medication 
balm for the soul. Nothing, nothing will quiet the restlessness of your soul. Not an extra thousand dollars, not a better job, not a better internship, not a better grad school. Not a cuter boyfriend, not a boyfriend at all, not a cuter girl or girl at all. Not better friends. Nothing will quiet the, re- the restlessness of your heart until you find that the only way you can do that is Jesus. So what does that mean for us? How do we apply that? How do we, do, how do we apply these days to our lives? I want us to think that um, there, were, there were other aspects of sacredness that Leviticus talks about. There were sacred people, uh, the priests. Um, the priests were, were fulfilled in Christ. There was sacred space, the tabernacle and then the temple, as special places for God's presence. The tabernacle and the sacred space was fulfilled in Jesus too when he said, You, as my followers, are now my dwelling place. I'm sending my spirit to live in you. And so he fulfills that. The sacred acts of the sacrifices, Jesus came as the final sacrifice. And so... It is no surprise that Jesus takes the sacred time, all of these sacred celebrations and parties, and he points them all to himself, and he's saying, I am the party. I am the celebration. And if you want to celebrate all that life offers and all that God is holding out to you, you will find it only in me. And that necessarily means... That we will begin to rest, or he's at least offering us rest. It takes years to work through what that means in our lives. But he's saying you're not a machine. You're not a machine. You can't just keep going and going and going and going. This last weekend, I'm going to talk about that in a second. This last weekend, my family and I went to Duncan, Oklahoma, which is where I'm from. Hung out with my parents for a few days. And... uh, one of the things that's interesting about going to Duncan is just talking with my dad about what he does. My dad uh, works in the oil fields. He has done the same job uh, for 43 years. Graduated college, went to grad school, then went out to the oil fields and did this job. And he, it, it's funny to talk to him about it. It's funny to talk to anybody who's done the same thing for that long because it's just like it's a part of their life. My dad has some technology, if you can call it that, out in the oil field that is from the 1930s. So, a couple of things that tells you. That when I say my dad is in the oil business, he ain't wearing a suit and making millions of dollars. He's like coming home from work dirty and he makes enough to make a living, but he's not getting rich. Part of that is because he uses 1930s technology. So, this thing right here that we're about to watch a video of is that machine, that right there, it's called a geared power It is a solid machine. It has been working, except when it's down for service for a day or so at a time. It has been working nonstop for 80 years. 80 years. My dad thinks, and I think he's probably right, that it is the only, that he is the only person in the world still using this technology. So much so that somebody came and videoed this and put it on YouTube. He has people from all over the world, oil companies that will drive out to the middle of nowhere so they can watch this thing happen like a relic from the past. Be like going to a dinosaur museum. That's my dad's work. Let's watch this. It's fascinating.
I love that change right there. Wait for it. Wait for it. There it is. All those lines that are heading out from that round thing go out to different oil wells, which you'll see one of those in a second. And all it does is those those streams of tubing just make the oil well go up and down like this all day, every day for the last 80 years. They make about three drops of oil a day. Got a scene change coming up. Wait for it. That's fascinating right there. My dad has to go out every single day of his existence, here his hired worker, and you put oil right there so that the wood doesn't uh, have too much friction and catch fire. There's an oil well. You see that? It just does that all day, every day. For the last 80 years, it'll stop for maybe a day, a day at a time. Why do I show you that? <laughs> it's a great question. I show you that to tell you this. You are not a machine. Uh, you are not created to work nonstop for the next 80 years. You can't do it. God has not made it possible for you to just go and go and go and go and go and go and go. He has created you so that you must stop. So that you must rest. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he actually commands it. It made the top ten list. Number four, you honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You've got to rest. Party on that day. Great. You've got to rest. Why is Jesus doing that? Hebrews chapter 4 says this, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The writer of Hebrews is saying that, look, if you enter into what Jesus has done for you, then that, that deep yearning of your heart to be significant and to be somebody and to want your life to count and matter, the author of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus gives you that. And when you realize that, you can begin to take a deep breath and to actually stop doing some things. Actually stop doing some things in your daily life. You can look even at one day a week and say, I'm just not going to work that. I'm not going to do homework on that day. Or I'm not going to do whatever. And I'm going to create space in my life to, to do other things I don't get time to do. I'm going to have fun. If you're of age, you're going to sit around drink wine. I don't care. It's not about all the things that you do and don't do. It's about you putting time and realizing that God is commanding you to stop and to rest in Him. A friend of mine uh, reminded me of an illustration that says that these feasts, and, and I'm closing with this, these feasts were like, he likens him to a rose that, that a man would give his lover, or vice versa, a woman would give her lover. Roses are they're beautiful, they're delicate, they're exquisite, they're visible, and they're tangible, and they're real. 
You touch them in the soft petals. You smell them and they're fragrant. But the rose itself is never intended to be the object of the beloved's affection. If you give someone roses, the hope is not that they take your roses and turn around and walk off and just smell them, is it? It's that they smell them, they touch them, they look at them, and then their eyes raise back up and they look at you. The roses are not the object of the affection. They are a means for the loved one to hear from the lover once again, I love you. And I'm giving you this gift as a means of telling you something deeper and greater. I am for you. I am with you. These are merely a a sign and a token that I am yours. That you have my heart. And I tell you that illustration to tell you that when, when Christians, if you've been around this for a while, you understand this. If not, welcome to the weird little part of, of Christianity where when you start talking about resting or to use the older word, a Sabbath day, taking one day a week um, to worship God, usually uh, at church and, and just to kind of take off from working and doing school or whatever. When Christians talk about this stuff, usually you end up in minutia of all the things you shouldn't do and can and can't do and all that stuff. But the rose illustration helps us here in three ways. It says that the point of Sunday and the point of, of that Sabbath day is to find Jesus. It's to find Jesus. He's the beloved. He's the one that it's all about. It's not about the day, it's about Him. Second, if you don't give your lover roses, if there's never an exchange of roses between lovers, maybe it means you're not in love. Have you ever felt the permission to stop and to just be with Jesus? Thirdly, it means that at this very moment right now, Jesus is holding out a rose to you, and He's inviting you to get off the treadmill of your performance, and of your tirelessness, and of all of your frenzied action. And He is inviting you to come out of your misery and to come and rest and celebrate who He is and everything that He has done for you in His cross and in the resurrection. He's offering you a rose and He's he's saying, will you take this? Will you come to the party with me? Will you come and, and, and celebrate everything that I've done and who I am? It's for you. I love you is what he's saying. He's holding out to you tonight. Let's pray together.